somewhere in the Pacific, there is a whale. There are many whales, but none quite like this one. It has never been seen, only heard. Starting with its detection by scientists from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in 1989, the whale's unusual voice has been heard every year since. It uses the language of a whale, but not the frequencies of a whale. This is what it sounds like. It speaks at 52 hertz. Blue whales call out at 10 to 39 hertz. Fin whales at around 20 hertz. And to be very specific, since even better observations have been made since the early 1990s, the frequency of the mysterious whale has dropped to 50 hertz from 52, which is good news. It means it's gotten older, it's grown, it's matured. The array of scientists at Woods Hole have no idea what it is, other than the basic fact that it is a single whale. It moves around the Pacific Ocean like a blue whale, but has a seasonal pattern like a fin whale. And they can hear it, and you can hear it, and can track its movements along the North American coast from the Aleutians to Baja, thanks, as you might have guessed, to Cold War technology. It was in that giant explosion of declassification after the Cold War in 1991 that a U.S. Navy listening system was made available to researchers. But of course, it doesn't require Cold War technology for whales to speak to one another. But it does require whale technology to hear Soviet submarines lurking in the dark. But even that isn't exactly what I want to talk about. How would you like to start out with whales and end up with aliens? This time on the Cold War Vault. A whale song like that is much closer than what we heard a moment ago, but not that close. That was recorded by a Monterey Aquarium project with a hydrophone, an underwater microphone, about 3,000 feet underwater and 18 miles from shore. The idea that sound could carry great distances underwater, much farther than you might think possible, was pioneered by a geophysicist and oceanographer named Maurice Doc Ewing. 
It's hard to authoritatively say what Doc Ewing's principal contribution to the sciences was during his life. Some of his papers are still classified. By way of a simple biography, he was born in Texas in 1906, got his PhD from Rice University, and eventually spent most of his career at Columbia. He died in 1974. One of the several specific projects he undertook as a geophysicist was pioneering work in the reflection and refraction of sound in Earth's oceans. How it worked, and even more importantly, how it could be used. What Doc Ewing discovered in the early 1940s was something that would come to be called the Sound Fixing and Ranging Channel, or SOFAR. Essentially, it's a waveguide in the ocean that can carry sound for thousands of miles across entire basins. How does it work? Well, I can start by asking if you've ever gone underwater and discovered a place where the temperature suddenly changed. You probably wouldn't notice this on your last Caribbean vacation, but in a freshwater lake, it's fairly noticeable. That's called a thermocline, a very, very specific division between temperatures. Or, if you like, you could imagine a nice vinaigrette dressing, left to settle in a bottle. The oil sits at the bottom and the vinegar at the top for the same reasons that the water divides itself. Density. In the ocean, saltier, colder water sits below the less salty, warmer water. There are a few different strata. If you were to go down to the space between layers and make a sound, that sound will travel. It will be caught in the channel. Sounds travel fastest in warm water. The speed of sound decreases the farther down you go and the colder it becomes, but the water in the ocean only gets so cold. It doesn't just keep getting colder, but the pressure keeps increasing. When the sound hits that point, it speeds up again and is bent back upward. It bounces like this, actually refracts like this, as far as you like, not losing very much energy. For instance, the missile impact locating system, MILS, can hear a missile hitting the water and the seafloor from 5,700 miles away. More on that system in a moment. Doc Ewing wanted to test the theory that this waveguide actually existed, and the US Navy was excited about it for their own reasons. So with full support in the spring of 1944, with the Second World War still underway, Ewing and his longtime colleague, J. Lamar Wurzel, sailed into the Atlantic from Woods Hole in Massachusetts for the experiment. Ewing and Wurzel set out on the research vessel Saluda to listen for a series of depth charges set off in the sound channel by another ship 900 miles away. And there was no mistaking it. The theorized reverse echo was exactly what they'd expected. It was so clear that Ewing declared that, quote, the end of the sound channel transmission was so sharp that it was impossible for even the most unskilled observer to miss it. Here's what they heard. This is from a similar experiment in 2004.
Now, you can imagine how this would be useful in hearing submarines. But the immediate use of the technology was in the development of something called the SOFAR bomb. This was not to kill submarines, but to save downed pilots. The small sphere would be carried in a survival kit and contain a certain amount of TNT. Four pounds seems to be the consensus in the records. The sphere could be adjusted to detonate at different depths, like a depth charge, which is exactly what it was. And that's because the sound channel itself moves depending on the ocean's topography. When one of these bombs would detonate, an array of underwater microphones would pick up the sound. The minimum useful number would be three. Of course, that's why it's called triangulation. And the different receiving times would allow a calculation that could find the downed crew on the open ocean. As time went on, a lot of attention and money was given to the listening stations, and less so on developing the SOFAR bombs. And as technology progressed rapidly, triangulation by radio beacons became a useful option for rescue, and satellite timing after that became GPS. But like radar, radio detection and ranging, a term also coined by the United States Navy in World War II, the SOFAR channel got its name from this early use, sound fixing and ranging. It's a term still used to describe the deep sound channel today. But what of the listening stations? Well, the discovery was so useful that the US Navy expanded the early experiments into the LOFAR program. This was the low frequency analysis and ranging system. At the beginning of the Cold War, the Soviets had a very large but very noisy diesel submarine fleet. The same system that could hear those so far bombs could hear the submarines at distances of hundreds or even thousands of miles. This research fell under Project Jezebel, which began in 1950. This is one of the rare instances that a Department of Defense codename had a meaningful origin. That being, Jezebel, a woman of low character, was engaged in looking for low frequencies. An ever-growing network of underwater microphones, these hydrophones, eventually became the sound surveillance system, the SOSUS network, a multi-billion dollar network that of course had to be hidden from the Soviets by way of hiding it from the US taxpayers. And so it was originally given the public-facing name Project Caesar in 1952. This covered the construction of the coastal facilities that were physically wired to the hydrophones out on the continental shelf, all of which were said to be just an oceanographic survey in conjunction with civilian scientists. A quick timeline will demonstrate the continued growth and success of the Navy's use of the sound channel. Through the 1950s, listening stations came online from the Caribbean, up the U.S. eastern seaboard, and into Canada. I mentioned earlier that the systems could be used to detect missile impacts. In fact, during the Mercury program, during the manned phase from 1961 to 1963, the Missile Impact Localization System, Broad Ocean Area, or MILS-BOA, was used to locate the returned capsules. Of course, the capsules were also used to test the system. 
Each one was fitted with a small location detonation, a SOFAR bomb. In October of 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the valiant efforts of the ships in the Caribbean did find Soviet submarines lurking in the local area, but the Atlantic transits of those submarines were picked up and tracked by the listening system. In 1963, SOSIS detected the hull collapse of the USS Thresher, a submarine disaster I've spoken of before on the vault. Then in 1968, the system was also able to locate the USS Scorpion after its sinking. By 1985, positioning technology allowed mobile towed hydrophones to join the hunt for Red October in the SureTAS or Surveillance Towed Array Sensor System, and eventually the Integrated Undersea Surveillance System, which it is today. All of this was, of course, declassified in 1991, when it was obvious that there would never be any geopolitical conflict ever again, ever. Though it's often written that the existence of the military mission was an open secret anyway. The Soviets had actually independently developed an understanding of the sound channel at roughly the same time that Doc Ewing had. As a side note for your own investigation, the strange things their own system may have heard over the years remain in the archives, locked up or lost. Under Project Jezebel, as scientists and technicians first listened to this suddenly accessible undersea world that had been imagined as silent and dark, it was suddenly full of eerie voices calling out from a thousand miles away. One call that vexed them greatly came fairly regularly in the deep sound channel. They called it the Jezebel Monster. And we'll come back to Monsters of the Unknown very soon. But I'd like to go back and explore those earliest days of discovery of the sound channel and let Doc Ewing and his many partially declassified papers be our guide. Let's return to the SOFAR bomb, already available at the end of World War II. The simple nature of the system, and the fact that Doc Ewing had been correct, gave him another idea. So I suppose I described the deep sea sound channel correctly, but vaguely, or clumsily, for oceanographers and physicists. But for the purpose of introducing the idea on the Cold War vault, it's satisfactory. But with that said, you may just get some satisfaction, because I have to return to that description and, though it's the same phenomenon, we can describe it in a new way when it takes place in the air. Doc Ewing had every confidence that if the sound channel existed between layers in the ocean, which it did, then the same phenomenon should occur in the sky, between layers of hot and cold air. 
As a paper in the Journal of Geophysical Research suggested in 1963, long after Ewing's government projects knew it to be so, quote, the mean temperature profile of the atmosphere indicates the probable existence of two horizontally distributed sound waveguides in the atmosphere. Author Sam Keane has a great description of the phenomenon in the book Caesar's Last Breath, Decoding the Secrets of the Air Around Us. It goes like this, paraphrasing, Air gets cooler as you get higher. You can see it on snow-capped mountain peaks or even a drive on a mountain road. The air temperature gets very cold, but only to a point. And this slows the speed of sound. By the time you get to 60,000 feet, ozone appears, which absorbs ultraviolet light and warms up. In fact, it warms the air all the way up to 150,000 feet. So we have warm air on the ground, warm air at 150,000 feet, and very cold air in the middle. Sound can be caught in the channel, bouncing, or rather refracting, between the two warm layers and it follows the cold layer. So, coming off the experimental success of the 1944 Oceanic Sound Channel experiments, and the birth of the entire anti-submarine warfare aspect of the sound channel listening technology, Doc Ewing had an idea. Now, remember, while the United States developed a nuclear weapons technology for use in 1945, the U.S. intelligence establishment didn't imagine an adversarial bomb, a Soviet bomb, before 1953. The British said that it couldn't even be done before 1954. But all were in agreement that it would happen, and the United States would need to know as soon as the Soviet bomb came to be. So in 1945, Doc Ewing suggested that using the same sound channel technology that clearly worked in the world's oceans, the United States might be able to hear a Soviet nuclear test. He was met with no immediate skepticism, which I think is rare for wild ideas. The Navy had heard their own submarines at a thousand miles, after all, so it seemed reasonable, almost commonsensical. Doc offered his theory to the Chief of Staff of the Army Air Forces, soon to be the Air Force, and the project started to come together. In early 1946, the Air Materiel Command Engineering Division handed the project down to the Electronics Subdivision, which then assigned the project to Watson Laboratories Engineering Division, Applied Propagation Subdivision, located in Red Bank, New Jersey. In case you were wondering, this is how black project money gets hidden. Divisions and subdivisions until it vanishes down the rabbit hole. The New York University Balloon Group was constituted to develop the balloon technology that would be necessary to fly the weather balloons at a constant altitude. They had to stay in the sound channel and to build new instrumentation but this would be entirely on the civilian side of the project, which was dubbed Project Mogul. 
a name that doesn't have the meaning of Jezebel, but would go down in history just the same. While NYU launched the balloons, tracked them, and recorded telemeter data, the balloon group was not privy to whatever sounds were bouncing around up there in the frigid atmospheric channel. It was a compartmentalized, classified project with an academically sponsored peacetime face. The details of the balloon development are a tedious slog through bureaucratic acquisition and Department of Defense approval, but there are some interesting points that are useful for our tale. Because when you can't get the best, you expense the rest. The ideal weather balloon would have been the recently developed polyethylene balloons. The NYU group had ordered them, but they hadn't been received yet. The new balloons were giant, clear constructions that would rise into the sky as they were inflated and were said to resemble Macy's Thanksgiving-sized prophylactics. Alas, the balloons for most of Mogul were made of neoprene, which gave the NYU group a much harder time in controlling the altitude. The group did, in fact, fly balloons from a manufacturer in New Jersey that had been making most of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade balloons. The parade had only been going on for 18 years at that point. Still, Doc Ewing was feeling good about the project when flights started in early 1947 from Alamogordo Army Airfield in New Mexico. Another technical problem that Ewing had to overcome was the tracking issue. The balloons moved with different atmospheric streams as they ascended and descended, and so might end up, well, anywhere. Radar was the obvious solution, but these weather balloons and their microphone payloads actually had a very small radar cross-section and flew high above the range of normal aircraft. The Alamogordo radar system had trouble tracking it, and so the NYU balloon group found a dual solution. First, make the physical radar cross-section bigger. According to an Air Force report on the project from 1995, a string of large microphones, disc microphones, and reflectors, 657 feet long, was hung from a balloon. They called it a balloon train. This 65-story creature would weave and snake as each segment passed through different air currents, which is also important for our story. A second solution for the tracking problem was to add radar reflectors, which does seem obvious in hindsight. The reflectors were handmade by a garment company or a toy company, the government report isn't sure, but probably was a company that had extruded toothpaste tubes during the war. After an initial plan to fill the insides of the balloons with anti-aircraft chaff glued to the interior walls with glycerin, corner reflectors were selected instead. I have an image in the show notes and more detailed information on Patreon, but in general, they looked like box kites that might fit on an average kitchen table. They were assembled with frames and struts made of balsa wood and fixed to a foil material with tape. Lending credence to the toy company narrative, the tape was a novelty cellulose tape, which North Americans call scotch tape, and other English speakers call cello tape. 
It had purple figures printed on it, simple flowers and geometric symbols. It was surplus, and the project requirements were hardly rigorous. And so the secret government balloons went aloft in 1947 with wacky tape for party invitations and the balsa wood for model airplanes. The towers of silver boxes and disc microphones twisted and squirmed and glinted in the moonlight at extraordinary altitudes, moving in ways that no airplane could, or would, or should. Just imagine. At about 3 p.m. on the 24th of June, 1947, and 9,200 feet over Washington State, Kenneth Arnold turned his small personal plane toward Yakima after spending some time loitering, looking for a lost Marine Corps C-46 transport plane and hoping for the promised reward. That didn't pan out. But what he was about to see would affect popular culture for decades to come. A glint, a flash like the sun on a mirror, 20 miles away, and then a series of flashes like the first. He checked for reflections for nearby aircraft, but even through a lowered side window with the wind whipping through the cockpit, he saw the lights, which seemed to fly in a long chain. Though we still don't really know exactly what Ken Arnold saw, we do know that it sparked a national sensation. Suddenly, in the summer of 1947, everyone was looking to the sky to see more mysterious aircraft. Though the specific origin of the term flying saucer is debated, usually flying disc in those days, it's clear that it started with the interviews and newspaper headlines generated by the Arnold encounter. In the six weeks that followed, 850 sightings of flying saucers were reported around the country and prominently displayed on newspaper front pages. It was a phenomenon. It was a cultural frenzy. Were they Russians? Aliens? No one knew. But the truth was out there. Mac Brazel didn't have a radio. He didn't have a telephone. He didn't care much for any of it, and lived and worked on his remote New Mexico ranch, free from distraction. He hadn't heard anything about the National Flying Saucer flap that had been going on for nearly two weeks. If he had, he might have made a connection, because three weeks earlier, on about the 14th of June, while riding the ranch with his son Vernon, he came across a wide patch of strange debris. Now, not strange enough to warrant panic, but that also might be the stoic nature of a rancher from the American West. He described the wreckage as rubber strips, tinfoil, rather tough paper, and sticks. To keep the livestock from being tangled up in it, 
he gathered up as much as he could and stashed it. On the 5th of July, a Saturday, Brazel headed into town. Corona, New Mexico was, and is, a tiny, single main street, and the only place to get a beer in the very, very vast desert that surrounds it. This is where Brazel first heard the buzz surrounding what would become the 1947 UFO flap. People were seeing these things everywhere. A few people at the bar had seen them themselves, weaving and dodging, shining in weird ways in the moonlight. Brazel would later say that he should have just ignored it. He regretted getting involved. But either his curiosity, sense of patriotic duty, or some measure of both, kept him thinking about his strange wreckage through the night. Could that be something to do with these flying disks everyone was seeing? The next day, he recovered the debris he'd gathered up, and on Monday, he bundled it up and took it to the sheriff in Roswell. The sheriff was obviously aware of all the strange things that had been going on in New Mexico and in his own county for years. The Army airfields constantly held secret maneuvers, and it was only a hundred miles from his office that the first atomic bomb had been set off two years earlier. The sheriff didn't know what the shiny mess was, but he thought it was probably military. He called Roswell Army Airfield, which sent out intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel to investigate. Marcel arrived with someone only described in the 1995 government report as a man in plain clothes. And along with Brazil, he went back to the scene of the crash to pick up any more missing pieces. On Monday night, Major Marcel took all of the collected debris back with him to base. The next morning, the Major took the pile of sticks and foil to the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard. Following the proper chain of command, he reported the crumpled debris to General Roger Ramey at the Fort Worth Army Airfield. While not sure if it was friend or foe, but certain that it might be some kind of experiment, General Ramey ordered the bundle to be flown to Fort Worth immediately, and so Major Marcel took it by hand on a B-29 Superfortress. What happened next is the kind of confusion that seems like an innocent enough debacle, but ends up polluting the historical memory for years, for decades, forever. A famous photo summarizes what came next and is very much part of the Roswell lore. If you know about Roswell, you've probably seen the photo, or set of photos. The press was all a Twitter about the recovered flying disc, and so while in Fort Worth, Major Marcel posed for photos with the alleged alien craft. In the photograph, he squats beside the collapsed radar reflector and displays the foil skin. The original statement to the press in Fort Worth stated that what had been recovered was some sort of weather balloon, which was, of course, 50% true. It was a balloon, but it was not to gauge the weather. 
Where the flying disc element comes in remains uncertain. We know that Colonel Blanchard and Major Marcel used the term with the press, perhaps in a joking way, or perhaps to create a magnificent distraction. But in July of 1947, the term had been in use for only a few weeks, and so no one really knew what it was supposed to mean. It certainly didn't have the extraterrestrial connotation that it would come to have in subsequent decades. The flying discs were already circulating in the headlines, which may have had little or nothing to do with actual discs, let alone aliens. A now-famous FBI telegram seems to confirm the confusion. The unidentified flying objects the government was worried about weren't the extraterrestrial kind. They were the Russian kind. And so on the 8th of July, the FBI got involved. And in a telegram from the Dallas field office to Washington, described the debris this way. The disk is hexagonal in shape and was suspended from a balloon by a cable. The balloon was approximately 20 feet in diameter. The object found resembles a high-altitude weather balloon with a radar reflector. In this telegram, confusingly, the disk is hexagonal. While it's likely that Major Marcel and Colonel Blanchard of Roswell wouldn't have known exactly what was going on at Alamogordo with Mogul, General Ramey in Fort Worth likely did know about what the scientists in Mogul were up to and would have had a strong hunch that the recovered wreckage was from that very, very secret project. I neglected to mention before, when I say secret, Project Mogul was given the same top secret attention that all nuclear secrets were given. That means it's possible that even General Ramey might have been guessing. And so it was either intuition or a genuine belief that the whole ordeal was caused by a crashed weather balloon. In any case, this is when the debris was bundled up yet again and flown to Wright-Patterson Airfield in Ohio, further laying the foundation for the alien conspiracies that were to come. Still, Colonel Marcellus Duffy, who had formerly been the top-secret control officer for Mogul and was now at Wright-Patterson, was the go-to man for this sort of thing. When the debris arrived and its custodian woke him in the middle of the night, he identified it quickly. He said, It sure looks like some of the stuff you've been launching at Alamogordo. But the weather balloon story acted as an umbrella cover story, and letting the press run wild with the flying disc sensationalism further diverted attention from the real secret of Project Mogul. For the sake of headlines, this incident continued to fuel the interest of the press. The July 1947 historical report for the 509th Bomb Group states that the Office of Public Information was quite busy during the month answering inquiries on the flying disc, which was reported to be in the possession of the 509th. The object turned out to be a radar tracking balloon. While the outside world developed theories about a cover-up, life at the Roswell base was frustratingly normal. Immediate theories included a plane crash, an errant missile, or even a nuclear accident. But during the entire month of July, 
The morning reports at Roswell showed that there was no high-level activity, no expenditure of manpower or resources, and no heightened level of security. Colonel Blanchard even went on leave on July 8th. One would think he would have stayed around to participate in the historic recovery of an alien craft or the disaster recovery efforts. It's hard to believe, but the Roswell incident at the time was seen as a non-event. It wasn't until 1978 that there was a renewed interest in the subject. Beginning with a documentary by famed UFO booster Stanton Friedman called UFOs Are Real. It went from there, and year after year, it ballooned, that is a solid pun and I will stand by it, into the webwork of conspiracies that surround Roswell today. My favorite of these being the claim that Stalin employed Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele to produce grotesque child-sized aviators to land in the United States and cause an alien panic. But as for Roswell, U.S. Air Force First Lieutenant James McAndrew summarized the whole ordeal as bluntly as I could, though with slightly less sarcasm, in his introduction to the thousand-page report on the Roswell incident in 1995. He said, quote, In the final analysis, it appears these individuals, UFO researchers, have pursued the convenient red herring provided by Roswell Army Airfield, while the real explanation lay just over the Sacramento Mountains at the Mogul launch site in Alamogordo. While these answers are not as titillating as tales of unearthly craft and creatures, it is a fascinating story nonetheless. Well, Lieutenant, I would tend to agree. What came of Project Mogul? Well, Doc Ewing's idea worked. It worked in the sky as surely as it worked in the ocean, but it was expensive. And what was increasingly clear was that even with the major innovations of the project, like constant altitude balloon flights, the long trains were subject to crashing, leaving any highly sensitive equipment vulnerable to discovery and a repeat of the Roswell incident of July 47. Project Mogul was in a lull and not in operation in August 1949 when the Soviet Union detonated RDS-1, their first nuclear device. A new system of air sampling, subtle and secret, succeeded where Mogul had not. It was a way to detect Soviet nuclear tests that was as inexpensive as the sampling flight itself. Mogul was not reconstituted, though its balloon technology fed into the Skyhook program and the Genetrix program, which are massive subjects in their own right, and the low-frequency listening technology would eventually be deployed in the service of verifying nuclear weapons tests, but this time the microphones would have their ears to the ground instead of the sky, or the deep, deep sea. 
We don't need to look to extraterrestrials to find mysteries and monsters. But before I leave Doc Ewing's work behind, I thought I might offer one more story from the sound channels. For those who might be feeling a little disappointed that the Roswell crash might have just been a balloon after all. In the summer of 1997, scientists from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, were searching the submarine frequencies for volcanic sounds. They were using the Equatorial Pacific Ocean Autonomous Hydrophone Array, which was designed and built by NOAA's Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory as a standalone system that could augment their use of the Navy's SOSIS which Noah had been using openly since declassification in 1991. What the researchers heard was something entirely new. The sound was triangulated to the South Pacific, west of the southern tip of South America. It was louder than any known marine animal, so loud that it was clear at ranges of over 3,000 miles. They called it Bloop. Here it is at 16 times speed, otherwise it's too low and slow to hear. Some scientists sparked a heated debate when they claimed that the sound was likely to be biological, from something in the deep sea that had never been discovered something giant, bigger and louder than the loudest whale, Leviathan. I wish I could leave it there, but I can't. By 2005, the general consensus had moved to Bloop being a mass of ice cleaving in Antarctica. As more hydrophones were deployed ever closer to that continent, the signature of ice quakes and cracks became clear, and the mystery was solved. Other deep ocean sounds have been heard over the years and given names that attempt to reconstruct their frequencies. Bloop, Train, Slow Down, and the eerie Julia, that is the groaning sound of a giant iceberg running aground off the coast of Antarctica so loud that it was able to be heard throughout the Equatorial Pacific Ocean Autonomous Hydrophone Array. But there are still mysteries in the sound channels. Upsweep is a sound identified in 1991 and has been present seasonally ever since. It is loud enough to be recorded all across the Pacific and is located somewhere between New Zealand and South America. The sound builds, reaching peaks in spring and autumn. Perhaps mating season? It sounds like this. has been declining since its discovery in 1991, almost as if it's growing old. Or maybe it's just another volcano. 
What is certain is that the sound channels offer us more opportunities for mystery. So that even when history or science closes the book on one source of wonder, just like telescopes to the stars, we can put our ears to the ocean and hear what calls out from the dark. And we can wait for the day that we can call out in turn. Though I'm not sure how I will feel if we get an answer. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. Please like the show, subscribe, and review it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It helps the vault to rise in the ranks. And consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Subscribers will get the government reports, sound files, and images that were essential in writing this episode. So remember, the truth is out there. Until next time.